0: Father in heaven, I just thank you for the beauty of the gospel, I thank you for the new covenant, and I just pray as we look into the new covenant today that you would bless us with your presence, with a clearer understanding of what sanctification looks like, now that we've covered justification, and that this would prepare the ground for what glorification will look like in our last meeting. Just bless us abundantly and show us your glory, I pray, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of God in the New Covenant. We're going to have a Bible study this afternoon. Are you okay with that? Can I do that on Sabbath? That's, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, I hear. So whip out the their Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to have the Old Covenant defined and introduced, and uh, I would say introduced, and we'll go from there. The New Covenant introduced, just kidding. Watch my language there. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. If you want to know where to find the new covenant, it's actually found in the Old Testament. Hallelujah. We are Old Testament and New Testament Christians, and that's okay. We believe in the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, this is what God says He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make what type of covenant? A new covenant with who? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So there's a problem right away, he says, with the old covenant. And he says it was my covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them. So, what went wrong then? What was the situation that went down? Let's define the Old Covenant in Exodus chapter 19, and then we'll come back. Exodus chapter 19, and again, for those studious note-takers, these slides will be available after the fact. If you just want to sit back and enjoy the ride, you're welcome to. If it helps you to remember better, then go for it. But I also will try to be a good steward of our time. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 3. So, and Moses went up to God, verse 3 of Exodus 19, And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. This is endearing language here. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Verse 7, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. God says, here's what I want for the people. The people say, we got you. No problem. No problem. We can handle that. Tell the Lord all that you said, we will do. It continues. Go to Exodus chapter 24. This is now after the Ten Commandments are given. Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 3. Exodus 24 and verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Sound familiar? Yeah, they just said that in Exodus 19. Go to verse 7. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and be obedient. Three times, once in Exodus 19, twice in Exodus 24, God gives the requirements he has for them, and they say, no problem, we can do it. All that the Lord has said, we will do. Hey, that's what my slide says. So, question, did they? You all seem to be in agreement. They did not keep the promise. This is why Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, and Hollywood does this to us, every time I read this text, I see Charlton Heston. Anyone else have that problem? And he comes down from the mountain with his big gnarly beard. There's a movie called The Ten Commandments that came out like 30 years ago, and there's a, the guy who played Moses in the movie was Charlton Heston. He had this big, gnarly beard, and he comes down from the mountain, throws the Ten Commandments on the ground, and breaks them. Why? Because he was signifying what the people had just done um, and how they had just broken the commandments of God. They had just broken the covenant. So, how do we know that the Ten Commandments are the covenant? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is a very quick reference. Quick hit it and get it and leave. Deuteronomy 4, verse thir- 11 to 13. Just for any doubts that anyone may have, this is Moses recounting to the people the encounter they had with God at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 4, verse 11. Deuteronomy 4, verse 11 says, "'Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness.' And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. And what is that covenant? According to Moses, what he says right now, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So it should be abundantly clear that the covenant was the Ten Commandments. And the people three times said, we will do it. We will do it. We will do it. The problem is they didn't. Okay? And we'll unpack that now. Go to Jeremiah 31. In fact, they were so freaked out by God talking, they literally told Moses, look, you talk to him. Let him kill you, but we're done. Like, we, we, we're, we're terrified. You speak to him. Whatever he says, we'll do it. Just tell him to be quiet. Right? The, the people are just terrified at this stage. Why? Because they had a very unhealthy view of God. They had an appeasement-based theology that was still in their bloodstream from Egypt. And if the gods are angry... you you make more agreements, right? You, you You do what they say to get them to chill out because they're freaking us out right now. They had a misunderstanding of the true character of God who saw them as his spouse, right? Hosea picks up on this and says, "'No longer will I call you my master. I'll now call you my husband.'" meaning how we should view God in that sense. Not that we don't obey God, but just there's this this endearing, relational, matrimonial language employed as opposed to just servitude. Jeremiah 31, now let's go back. Now that we have some context, let's reread Jeremiah 31. Beginning in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So what seems to be at fault here? Is it the terms of the covenant, or is it the people who made the agreement? The people that made the agreement. Verse 32. Uh, Just kidding, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will, so no longer we will, I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man and every teach his neighbor and every man and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This sounds too good to be true. Like this covenant is being made to people who had disobeyed. He's making this covenant to covenant breakers. And he says, I'm gonna write my law in your hearts and in your minds, and I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. I will be your God, you will be my people, but I have no intention of remembering your sins. So the law then is no longer outwardly imposed, it's inwardly inscribed, but it remains a part of the human experience nonetheless. We're not doing away with the law, as Paul said, God forbid. We're just putting it in its appropriate place. So the law doesn't go away, the covenant doesn't end. What changes is who the onus is on for making sure that the people will keep it. That's what changes. God is now promising to empower the people to keep it instead of them promising to keep it in their own strength. You understand the difference? And that's just from a reading of the text of Scripture, right? Also, we assume that when we can't keep the law that we're cast off and can't be God's people anymore. But that isn't the way that he addresses them. He says, as part of the new covenant, that he's not going to bring... They're going to be brought into his favor, first of all, through God's pursuit of them. It's through what he's doing that causes him to no longer remember their sins, not based upon what they do. They'll be my people and I will be their God, and their sins and lawless deeds I'll remember no more. So, it sounds too good to be true, and we wonder, can God forgive us? And the reason why we ask this question is because of Revelation 12, which we mentioned in divine service. There is an accuser of the brethren who's gainfully employed. (laughs) Yeah? And who's absolutely desperate because his time is short. Now, If God has no intention of remembering your sins, then why is it that we are so dead set on reminding ourselves of our past mistakes and sins? God has no intention of remembering your sins anymore. And you say, yeah, but God, I did fill in the blank. And God's response is, I don't remember those anymore. No, but you should, because I did this. It was on this day, at this time, with this person involved. Yes, but you confessed that sin. And the blood of Jesus covered that sin, I now have no intention of ever bringing that up against you ever again. In fact, the only time a sin like that's gonna come up before me again is whenever you commit the same sin again. Yeah? Those sins can become uncovered in that sense, but that's the only reason why. But he wants to give us freedom. Now go with me to Hebrews chapter 8. This is awesome. Hebrews chapter 8. I believe the Apostle Paul is who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's very similar language and logic that he uses in Romans and other places. But in Hebrews chapter 8, regardless, uh, the author of Hebrews addresses this very issue. They talk a lot about the sanctuary in Hebrews, don't they? But wait a minute, the sanctuary, that's an Old Testament, dusty old thing that doesn't matter anymore. Well, why is this New Testament author, who's the most prolific author in the New Testament, Luke had more words, but Paul had more books, why is it that he keeps making a big deal about the sanctuary in Hebrews? Because... It's a big deal. But look at what he says here Hebrews chapter 8, beginning of verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. This is speaking of Jesus. And he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. No longer is a covenant based upon man's faulty promises to God. It's now based upon God's faithful promises to man. This is good news. The covenant is now based upon God's faithful promises to man. And through the hands of a mediator, we have help. So the very things that God is expecting of us and asking of us, we've actually been promised to be given help to do. He continues, actually. He says, For if the first covenant had been bro- faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? At least we say that in southern Illinois. I don't know about in sophisticated Tennessee, but we say that. And, but then he says, Because finding, fight, uh, because finding fault with who? In verse 8 of Hebrews 8, with them, he found fault with the people. And you know what Paul does right after this? He starts quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, the very thing we just read. Let's skip past that quote of Jeremiah 31 and go to verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, it's not the terms of the covenant that are at fault, it's the self-confidence and self-righteousness of the people who made the agreement. And again, it's because they had this awful view of God because they came out of a pagan, uh, appeasement-based religion in Egypt. They just hadn't gotten that out of their bloodstream yet, which is also one of the reasons why God speaks so loudly to them, because of the spiritual maturity of the party that was present, right? He speaks with a still, small voice to Elijah in the mountain, on the same mountain, by the way, it's Mount Horeb. But then he speaks with power and thunder and lightning in Exodus. Why? Because that's where the people were. So the people needed to better understand who they were speaking with and working with. Does that make sense? The spiritual maturity at the party present is what mattered. So here the promise is being made that our old covenant experience of all that the Lord has said I will do has to become obsolete if we're going to have a successful Christian experience. Now, some people get freaked out by this because are you saying that we just don't do anything? The fear is we don't actually believe that God will keep His promise. And we read earlier that God is pleased most when we believe His promises. You want to please God? Believe what He says. Well, we don't believe that God's Holy Spirit will transform the life and bring obedience into a loving heart's experience. And so in turn, we need to be really hard on people and guilt them into obeying. That doesn't work, right? That's just going to create more old covenant Christians of all that the Lord has said I will do and none of us will get anything done. Rest kind of freaks some people out. But the crazy thing is those who learn to rest in Christ actually do more than those who don't. They obey more. They have more righteous fruit of obedience in their experience. They thrive in their Christian experience because they're resting in Jesus, because he's now working through them instead of them claiming it for themselves. Here's a quote to the illusion of what transpires. This is from The Faith I Live By, 111 and other places but she says, What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, then they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So when you realize that you got nothing to offer God but you, he can work with that. But when you think you got it together and are ready to snap your suspenders anytime you do something good for the kingdom of heaven, God can't use that because you're going to take credit. That's why Moses was judged so strongly, because he claimed something that only God could do. Must we bring water for you out of this rock, you insolent people? That's why Moses had to be judged as strongly as he was. Now, things turned out okay for him in the end. God forgave him. But the the punishment had to be firm. The higher up you are in the food chain, in God's governmental structure, the more accountable you are, right? It's it's important. Okay. Okay. So in Exodus 19, Exodus 24, the Israelites did not recognize their nothingness. This is obvious. And in turn, they were not in a place where they could receive the righteousness of Christ. In fact, they saw no need of the righteousness of Christ. It's very much Laodicea. I'm good. I'm all right. Everybody else has the problems. Now, why did all this happen? Why did God make this covenant with them if he knew this was going to happen? Like, I just don't understand. Why would this happen? Well, in these two chapters, which are basically the same chapter, but in two different places... And from Eternity Past, chapter 32, it's called The Grace of Christ and the New Covenant. In the Patriarchs and Prophets, chapter 32, it's called The Law and the Covenants. Same story, just a little different verbiage. Here's the deal. So why did God make an old covenant if all he wanted was the new covenant? And we're we're told in this chapter that actually the covenant that God made with Abraham is the new covenant. That's what God wanted to make with the Israelites but the Israelites did not understand their need of a savior, so God made the old covenant with them. So wait a minute. God made a reasonable covenant with Abraham, like, all of a sudden made an unreasonable covenant with the Israelites, and then realized his folly and then made a reasonable covenant again with the Israelites later? No, 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 no. What God always intended for the human experience to be was the new covenant. The problem was the Israelites were so unaware of their need of Jesus. They were so self-righteous and dependent upon themselves, they didn't see their need of a Savior. And so what we're told in these two chapters is that God allowed them to make this covenant so that they would crash and burn and recognize their need of Jesus. That's actually why. He knew this is the only way that they would get it. Fine. You think you can? Try it. And not because God wanted that, but he allowed them. They were stubbornly insistent three times. You said it. We do it. No problem. Big problem. They didn't do it. So God allowed them to make this covenant and to fall so they, in turn, would recognize their need of Jesus and then would receive the righteousness of Christ. This is what he wanted. They could have bypassed that if they weren't so self-righteous. Yes? I wonder if Moses did because the way that he's frustrated with the people, you can tell like, you guys don't get it, Right? In fact, Moses literally got to the point that he tells God, I think it's in Numbers, he says, if you have any care for me at all, kill me right here and now, because these people are driving me crazy. He literally told that to God. If you care about me at all, let's end this thing right here. So I think the reason why he kept pleading with God on behalf of the people was because he wanted him to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. Because in the same promise, for whenever Abraham trusted Christ to be his righteousness, in that same chapter he mentions, I think it's in Genesis 15, he says that there's going to be a time when your people are going to be in captivity, and after that time I'm going to send them another deliverer, which is the prophet that's referred to in the New Testament. Are you the prophet? Right? Talking about Jesus. And it's a promise that was given in Deuteronomy, that another man like you is going to come and deliver the people from their sins. And I think that Moses had that understanding, and this is why actually Joshua and Caleb said, look, their protection has left them regarding the Canaanites, because yeah, they look like they're bigger than us, but the protection has left them, they said, because they believe the promise made in Genesis 15. So I think there's some allusions to that could be the case, but I really don't know. I'll have to ask him. Remind me when I get to heaven and I'll ask Moses, but that means that you've got to be there and I've got to be there. Amen. So in the meantime, let's work on that, and then when we get there, one of us needs to remind the other to ask Moses whether he knew or not deal. All right. God's missional quandary. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. And anyone who's ever heard me preach, you've probably heard me preach on Ezekiel 36 and get over it because I'm going to do it again. Uh, I preach on it a lot because it's it's really, really important for us to understand. Ezekiel chapter 36, because there's a lot of stuff in here and we're actually going to, we're going to read a fair amount of Ezekiel 36 today on this very message. Verse 22, this is God's missional quandary, just verse 22 for now. Therefore say to the house of Israel, I, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this, what I'm about to do, for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. God's got a problem here. The nation of Israel, God's ideal missionary plan was for the Israelites to be the living, breathing example of what God looks like, character representatives, right? Kind of sounds like the 144,000, doesn't it? He wanted them to show the world just how awesome Jesus was and that following him led ultimately to happiness and to enjoyment and to the surrounding nations realizing that they needed Jesus. The problem is the Israelites were really awful at it because they were self-dependent. They were snobbish, racist, narcissistic, and nationalistic. They totally misunderstood their call. And so they end up viewing the other people as if they don't deserve to be saved, so when they were meant to be the missionaries to show how awesome God was by their teachings and by their example, they did the exact opposite. The surrounding nations hated God because of the example of the Israelites. Well, this is a problem because God could have sent angels to reach these folks, but He wanted to use people. So He sets up Israel in the perfect place in the trade corridor where people from the north headed south would pass through Israel. People from the south headed north would go through Israel. They would continually stumble upon the people of God and their awesome example. But God says, look, you, you look nothing like me. The surrounding nations want nothing to do with me because of you. Not because of me. People aren't rejecting me because of who I am. They're rejecting me because of how you're projecting me to be. And many young people are leaving our church in North America for this very problem. Badventists. Heavy-handed religionists who don't understand the balance of the new covenant, that God does expect obedience, but God supplies what's needed to do the obedience. When you surrender to His will and yield to the promptings of the Spirit, He will help you do what you need to do. But our young people are just, they don't know what to do with things, right? They're seeing things from some people, not all of our members, but they're seeing things from some heavy-handed folks that just isn't that attractive. And it's happening in Christendom in general. you got prosperity preachers flying in jumbo jets while the poor... Have nothing, right? There's bad examples of Christianity are causing God great problems. And our movement isn't immune to that. It's happening all over the place. Uh, in, In the Adventist Church, in the Baptist Church, in the Catholic Church, all faiths are wrestling with this right now. Bad representations of who God is. So God has this problem, it's still happening in the New Testament. Paul tells the church. Who does Paul tell? The church. He tells the church that the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Paul said that to the church. The name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, church folk. So this issue isn't new, right, to the church, and it hasn't fully gone away. Adults are leaving the church for this too. The problem is that's kind of a cop-out. Because even though you encounter bad Christians, that doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to get to know who God is for yourself. You should make your decision based upon what the Word of God says and what God says about himself, not bad Christians, yeah? That doesn't mean bad Christians keep doing what you're doing. You should stop that and stop it yesterday. But still, our decision needs to be made by ourselves, right, with the Word of God. So he continues, though, and he has the solution to how he's going to fix this. He says, and they will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, how? How? When I'm hallowed in you before their eyes, when you look like Jesus. Question. Yes, you in the front. How's that going to happen, right? The people obviously are not doing this. God wants them to look like Jesus. The people want nothing to do with the church and with God because they don't look like Jesus. So he says the people will know that I'm the Lord when you look like Jesus, but how? He continues, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and I'll bring you into your own land then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. We're a filthy mess at this stage. There are 10 I will statements we're about to start reading here and have started. 10 I will statements coming from God himself. I'll cleanse you. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. All the things you're running to to escape from God, to escape from accountability, to escape religion. He says, I'll cleanse you from that. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you the ability to be able to feel again. To have some form of enjoyment in the things of religion and obedience to my law. He says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's a promise. When you have an indwelling spirit of God living within you, you now do what you couldn't do otherwise. That's also good news. So the unbelieving world will know that the Lord alone, that God is Lord alone when we look like Jesus and we just found out How? They were selfish, narcissistic, judgmental, nationalistic, and they felt entitled to the favor of God because they were his chosen people. And if we're not careful, we're going to have the same problem on our hands. Just because we have a lot of light does not mean that we're walking in the light all the time. The message to the Laodicean church is not just that you're a sleeping Christian, it's that you're not who you think you are. You think you're okay, but you do not understand your need of gold tried in the fire, a faith that works by love. That means that your faith works. It does stuff, right, by love. You need white garments. You need the righteousness of Jesus. And you need ISAV. You need discernment to recognize your true condition. This is what we need. And not realizing that their mentalities and behavior kept the world from knowing that they were God's chosen people too. You know what the nation of Israel really was? Contractors. Contractors that were replaceable if they rejected their job. And this is what got them in a lot of trouble because, no, no, we're the people of God. Well, what do you do whenever their whole job is to prepare people for the Messiah? The Messiah comes and they crucify him and refuse to believe in him after the crucifixion. How could God possibly use them in just a reasonable, pragmatic sense to tell the world about Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus? So God raises up the Christian church. So anyway, God was very functional in his call. It was not favoritism. All the Israelites were supposed to do was tell the rest of the world, hey, you can be saved too. Not I'm saved and you're not. You should be saved too. And here's why. And the way that I talk to you and live, the way that God works in my life, would make you believe that God wants you to be saved too. That's the way it should work. Okay. So they weren't better than anyone else. They were meant to reach everybody else. And we just covered that. So God did not want the Ten Commandments to be something you believed. He wanted it to be a part of who you were. You understand the difference? If the Ten Commandments are a transcription of the character of God, and God wants His character to be replicated in His people, so the message of Revelation 18, the repetition of the third angel's message, can go to the world, the only way that's going to happen is if we look like Jesus, and the Ten Commandments, it's meant to be the essence of who you are, not just some stuff you believe in a book somewhere, or that's up on the pulpit back behind. Because it's the essence of who he is, and that's why. So the law was not the problem that needed to be changed. What needed to be changed was us. We're the problem. The law's relevance remains. So, continuing to verse 30, 28 to 30. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and bring no famine upon you. So they would be blessed, even when other nations suffered. so they would see that God provides for his people faithfully. Verse thirty, and I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Um, sometimes we feel that we can't be the people of God, and we have that Roman seven quandary, right? That we're just not who we want to be. We want to do the right things, but we don't do the right things. But God reassures us here that I'm going to set you free and deliver you from verses twenty six and onward. Right? Give you a new heart, teach you how to obey. And remembering that he's making these promises, we need to remember he's making these promises to a disobedient people because he promises to do something for them. If they take hold of his belief in them and submit to the process and choose to follow the promptings of the Spirit, their experience is going to become radically better and the world will take notice. Verse 31 Uh, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. When you encounter the goodness of God, the new covenant, it brings repentance to your experience. I believe the goodness of God leading to repentance in Romans 2, 4 is the new covenant and the cross of Christ because why would God do all of this cleansing and, and fixing of things that I've messed up? Why would he do that for me? Because he loves you and because he wants the world to know just how awesome he is, and he wants to use you to do it. This amazing mystery in Ephesians where Paul says that God's going to make known to the principalities, the unfallen worlds, and everyone else about the mysteries of God, and what agency is he going to use? The church. Ugly folk like me. He's going to use us to vindicate his character amongst the realms. I think that's amazing, because he knows that you can he knows that by the power of God living in you, it's already possible. In fact, with every command that God gives us, within the command is the power to do it. We're told, actually, I think that's actually going to be later, so I'll hold that. So, God would do that for me? Yeah, but I'm dirty. I have idols, right? I have a stony heart. I don't obey. Everything about this is what God promises to do for us. That's what we just read in Ezekiel 36. He'll fix all those problems. So God's goodness towards us isn't based upon what we do. It's based upon who He is. He doesn't just like decide to love us because we did something good. God has always loved us. He always wanted this for us. He always wanted us to be in fellowship with Him. He's providing the means necessary to make that possible. Now, some here may be getting a little antsy saying, yeah, but what do we do? Well, the I wills of God are actually dependent upon your I will. I will cease trying to appease God by my deeds. I will stop avoiding the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I will choose to believe the things about me that God believes. I will yield my will, my power of choice, and my desires to the one who's given all for my happiness and for my salvation. The I wills of God are dependent upon your I will, and he's asking you to lay down your old covenant experience of I wills and to rest in his. But amen. That, again, that idea of rest freaks some people out. But rest is not something you should be afraid of. The people who rest in Jesus do more for Jesus than the people who don't rest in Jesus. They do even more work. So yielding our wills and choosing to receive Christ's spirit of surrender is the hardest thing you'll ever do in human flesh. That's true. But it's what leads to our happiness and our victory. And when you encounter the Christ of the cross, you're willing to surrender to him because you know he has your best interests at heart. This is why the Ten Commandments are not at the front gate of the sanctuary. You know what the first thing is that you encounter when you walk into the sanctuary? The cross. When you encounter the cross and are baptized and enter the believer's experience, God begins a process of making you like him and the end goal is a perfect representation of him in the most holy place. This is where it will go but God doesn't start there. He starts where it makes sense with the cross to win your affections, to win your trust so you'll be yielding to the process the rest of the way because you know him. You don't want to surrender somebody you don't know but you would to someone that you knew had your best interests at heart that's the point again what is justification by faith it's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself and when men see their own nothingness they are prepared to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ we have to come to turn to the fact beloved that we have nothing to offer God but us that's it one of the things I love most about Jesus is that our piety does not impress him and our dirt does not discourage him. Jesus' love for you is at its zenith no matter what you do. Does that mean he approves of you living a self-destructive lifestyle? Of course not. You can't love someone and endorse foolishness. But his love for you is not dependent upon what you do. It's always there all the time. Our actions don't change that for the worse or for the better. This is from the Andrew Study Bible commenting on his Eco says, God will move his followers to obedience through the power of his spirit. This is a unique declaration about obedience as a result of God's working in humans through the Holy Spirit. Thus, obedience is not our achievement or performance, but a what? A consequence of letting God work in us. Alone, we are not able to follow him. Power to overcome evil and live in harmony with his commandments comes from a source outside of us. We are dependent upon God to provide what we need. Does that make sense? When we surrender to God and are dependent upon Him, we receive strength to obey. Only the Spirit of God can transform hearts and enable people to observe His laws and instructions. Now, I love this. What God requires, He also provides. Christ's object lesson says something even awesomer. It says, as the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes what? Omnipotent, all-powerful. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength, and all his biddings are enablings, which means that everything that God asks you to do within the asking or within the command is the power to do it, and a perfect example of this is a guy in John chapter 5. Jesus comes up to the man. He's the most helpless case there, and he's just in, in, in a rough shape, yeah? He's been an invalid for how long? Does anyone know? 38 years. And Jesus comes up to the man and asks him this seemingly obvious obvious and somewhat ridiculous question. Do you want to be made well? Now, do you think this guy wants to be made well? Yeah. But the answer the guy gives him shows a little bit about his experience. He's so filled with shame and unworthiness because of his lifestyle of sin, he doesn't think he deserves to be well. And he feels rejected because no one helps him. When the water is stirred, there's no one to help him. And if you're the most helpless case there, what's the chance of you getting in that water and being healed? Doesn't happen. You just give up on life eventually. Doesn't even shift his body weight anymore. Doesn't even have those palpitations of the heart anymore. When the water is stirred, it's for somebody else, not for me. But then Jesus says, rise, take up your mat and walk. Well, that would be taunting a man if Jesus didn't know what Elah White just said and what we believe that all of his biddings are enablings. So when Jesus tells the guy to rise, take up his mat and walk, With the command, the power comes at the same time to do it. The question is, will you receive the word of God and act upon it? And in Desire of Ages, it actually talks about this, that do not wait to feel that you were made whole. She says, of ourselves, we are no more capable, she says, our souls are palsied, and of ourselves, we are no more capable of living a holy life than was the impotent man capable of walking. But she says that we need to believe his word, and in acting upon his word, we receive strength. So When God says something with the saying, with the command, literally is the strength to carry it forward. The question is, what will you do? And your picture of God matters a lot when you receive the command. Because if you know God has your best interest at heart and God would do this for you, you're going to step out in faith and take him in his word. There was something about Jesus. And this guy saw it and he went for it. And he walked. But she also says that had he rejected, had he just laughed in the face of Jesus, that man never would have walked again. Would have lost his one chance of healing. It's good news for us. Desire of Ages 203 is where that's at. Go oh, ahead. That's what it says on the slide. And yeah, I guess I've preached this before. All right. So the Waldensians. The Waldensians, you'll never believe this, were preaching the message of Christ our righteousness to the people in their day. They believed in the gospel and the gospel of righteousness by faith specifically. Here's a story from, this is a summary, just kind of an abbreviated um, segment of Desire of Ages pages 72 to, or great controversy, 72 to 75. I'm not going to read all of it, but kind of a summary, but this is good stuff. So the, this is talking about the Bible workers of the Waldensian age. They saw that under the guidance of Pope and priests, multitudes were vainly endeavoring to obtain pardon by afflicting their body for the sin of their souls. Taught to trust to their good works to save them, they were ever looking to themselves their minds dwelling upon their sinful condition, seeing themselves exposed to the wrath of God, exposing soul and body, yet finding no relief. Thus, conscientious souls were bound by the doctrines of Rome. Thousands abandoned friends and kindred and spent their lives in convent cells by oft-repeated fasts and cruel scourgings, by midnight vigils, by prostration for weary hours upon the cold, damp stones of their dreary abode, by long pilgrimages, by humiliating penance and fearful torture, thousands vainly sought to obtain peace of conscience. You ever been there? Vainly striving to obtain it? Promises like ropes of sand, as we're told to Steps of Christ. Oppressed with the sense of... Uh, Family Santo take peace of conscience. Oppressed with a sense of sin and haunted with the fear of God's avenging wrath, many suffered on. Until exhausted nature gave way, without one ray or light of hope, they sank into the tomb. These people died without hope and without Jesus, and they worked their guts out in religion from stem to stern. And died without hope and without Jesus. This is not the gospel. Look at what she says in response to that. Jesus died as a sacrifice for man because the fallen race can do nothing to recommend themselves to God. The merits of a crucified and risen Savior are the foundation of the Christian's faith. The dependence of the soul upon Christ is as real, and its connection with Him must be as close as that of a limb to the body or of a branch to the vine. It was his, the Waldenzi's greatest joy, to give hope to the conscientious, sin-stricken soul who could only see a God of vengeance waiting to execute justice. People in this room may be having that picture of God. With quivering lip and tearful eye, did he, often upon bended knee, open to his brethren the precious promises that reveal the sinner's only hope. Thus, the light of truth penetrated many a darkened mind, rolling back the cloud of gloom until the Son of Righteousness shone into the heart with healing in His beams. It was often the case that some portion of Scripture was read again and again, and the hearer, desiring it to be repeated as if he would assure himself that he had heard aright, just sounded too good to be true to them. Especially was a repetition of these words eagerly desired. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1 7. And, John 3 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. The assurance of a Savior's love seemed too much for some of these poor, tempest tossed souls to realize. So great was the relief which it brought. "'Such a flood of light was shed upon them "'that they seemed transported to heaven. "'Their hands were laid confidingly in the hand of Christ, "'and their feet were planted upon the rock of ages. "'All fear of death was banished, "'and they could now covet the prison or the burning stake, "'that they might thereby honor the name of their Redeemer. "'In the secret places the word of God "'was thus brought forth and read, "'sometimes to a single soul, "'sometimes to a little company "'who were longing for light and truth.'" Often the entire night was spent in this manner and so great would be the wonder and admiration of the listeners that the messenger of mercy was not infrequently compelled to cease his reading until the understanding could grasp the tidings of salvation. I just need a minute. Like, that, that could be true for me. So great with... Um, yes, yeah, so great... Would be the wonder and the admiration of listeners that the messenger of mercy was not infrequently compelled to cease his reading until the understanding could grasp the tidings of salvation. Often would words like these be uttered Will God indeed accept my offering? Will he smile upon me? Will he pardon me? And the answer was read Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Faith grasped the promise, and the glad response was heard. No more long pilgrimages to make, no more painful journeys to holy shrines. I may come to Jesus just as I am, sinful and unholy, and he will not spur in the penitential prayer. Thy sins be forgiven thee, mine, even mine may be forgiven. A tide of sacred joy would fill the heart, and the name of Jesus would be magnified with praise and thanksgiving. Those happy souls returned to their homes to diffuse light, to repeat to others as well as they could their new experience. They had found the true and living way. And there was a strange and solemn power in the words of Scripture that spoke directly to the heart and to those who were longing for the truth. It was the voice of God, and it carried conviction to those who heard. These people had an encounter with righteousness by faith, it broke their chains of the legalism and the works based religion of the dark ages of the Catholic Church. And they found freedom, y'all. Real, genuine freedom in Jesus Christ and the power of the new covenant. Changed their lives. We can have that same experience today. I'm gonna skip this, but I will say this. Rest is not inactivity. You actually do more with God working through you. I can't make that more clear. Romans 8, I read this earlier, that what the law could not do and it was weak through the flesh, God did. This is Romans 8, 3 to 8. For... God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. Why? I think it's verse 4 or 5. He says that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus overcame sin in the flesh to enable us to do the same. That's good news. And Paul makes it abundantly clear Jesus went through this so that you could keep the law. So why would people use Paul's writings to say the law doesn't matter anymore? If Paul said that Jesus lived a sinless life and died so that we could do the same, right? It doesn't make any sense. Go back to Ezekiel 36. I want to finish out this chapter. He said, This is verse 33. Ezekiel 36, verse 33. He says, Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. Maybe some of you today, your life feels like it's ruins. Maybe your religious experience feels like ruins. I can't get anything right. Everything I do just crashes. It fails. I'm not good at anything. And you wonder, like, is, it, is it possible for God to make me new? Listen to this. I will enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled and instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by so that they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the wasted, desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left around you shall know that I the Lord have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I the Lord has spoken it and I will do it. Now remember, he began this chapter in verse 22 talking about the people being a problem and saying that no one wants to believe in God because of people. He now uses an illustration of cities being rebuilt, still talking about people. And he says that I the one who spoken it and I will do it. People realize That's not the person I saw at work last week. That's not the person I saw at church last Sabbath. Why? They look like the Garden of Eden. They were a wreck last week. Now they look like the Garden of Eden. What happened? The gospel. The message of righteousness by faith transformed their life. The cities have been revealed and people will take notice. Why? Because God did it. And when God does stuff, people take notice. When you do stuff, it doesn't work all that great. We'll cover that in a moment. But when God does stuff, people take notice. But look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I love that this is in the Bible. He literally just said, if you want this type of experience, you just got to ask. Ask me to give you that transformation. I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. You can do that today. And I will increase their men like a flock. And I like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like a flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Churches fill up when this message takes hold. Why? Because it's not legalism, nor is it liberalism. It's this perfectly balanced, Christ-centered message. People want in. You people are different than me. Right? We're called to be a peculiar people, not weird people. We're called to be peculiar. You know, these people don't do what I do. They dress different than I do. They eat different than I do. But man, they love Jesus. Like these people are so in love with Jesus, they're so Christ-like. I want what you have. I'm in. And I remember Pavel Goya was telling me a story about this guy who was praying after he'd heard about what Pavel was teaching on prayer. And he's like, I'm going to try that. I'm going to take God at his word. And he's driving down the road and it's snowing out. It's in like Michigan or Wisconsin or some crazy cold snow laden place that I never want to live And that means God will call me there in the next 12 months. <laughs> um, don't tell God what you don't want. You might get it. I vowed I'd never be a vegetarian. I'd never be a teacher. I'd never have a smartphone. I'd never do a lot of things. And I'm, I'd never be a speaker. So don't, don't play games with Jesus. Um, and But anyway, this guy starts praying. He says, Lord, I want to know you. Like I want to hear your voice. I want to do what you want. And he's driving by, and he sees something. He's like, well, I think I saw something. Right after he prays this, and his wife says, well, what did you see? He's like, I saw something white over there. She's like, there's snow on the ground. Of course you saw something white over there. He's like, no, I think there's something there. And he turns around in the places that say, don't make U-turns. He turns around, goes back to the interstate, goes over again, and he sees there's this old guy face down in the snow in a white bathrobe. He'd gotten out of an old folks' home, had Alzheimer's. And they throw him in the back of the car, they take him to the hospital, and the guy ends up being saved. Saved his life. He'd be in there for like 10 more minutes. He would've been dead. Doctors told him that. And the guy says, what, where did you find this guy? And he says, well, here's what happened. I told God that I want to see Jesus, like, I want to know you better, and I just want to listen to you, and so whenever I pray, I just want to hear your voice, I want to know you better. And when I prayed, he told me, look right, I looked right, and there was the guy. And he says, where's your church? I want to go there. And he's like, yeah, but we go to church on Saturday. I don't care if you go on Tuesday. I want to be there. Yeah, but we don't eat meat. I don't care if you eat, like, cardboard. Like, I want to be where the Spirit of God is moving. I don't care what day you go. I don't care what you eat, what you don't do. The guy's like, yeah, but we don't eat bacon. I don't care I want to go where the Spirit of God is at work. This is what Christians should look like. We should have a story like this. That's what God wanted. And He says, you can ask me to do this for you today. New Covenant Christians are possible today. And New Covenant Christians keep the commandments of God by the power of God in them. New Covenant Christians don't abandon the law of God. It becomes a part of them. They live it out because they look like Jesus. But, some of you may be saying, yeah, this sounds too good to be true. Like, D, you don't understand. Like, I've made a mess of life. I've done some really nefarious things in my life, some really dastardly deeds. I don't deserve to be saved. I'm just here because I know that this place has the truth. But I'm just not good enough. That could not happen for me. You know what the amazing thing is? God already anticipated that response. You know what the very next thing is in Scripture? Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 31, beginning of verse 1. What's that about? It's the dry bones. Some of you may be thinking that's just an allegory, it's not relevant here. I dare to differ with you. Breathe with me now, would you? Ezekiel 37, beginning of verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me, came upon me, and brought me out in the, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. How many people in this room work in the medical community? Anybody? Are there any hope for dry bones? Once the bone is dry, it's donezo. it's not coming back. Even when you have like protruding bones through the flesh, if you take something that's sterile and wet and place on the end of the bone, they want to do something to keep the marrow moist. They want to keep things going. Why? Because when the bone is dry, there's no hope of life. And God knows this, because you never believe this. He invented anatomy and physiology. He wrote the book on it. Even better than the books they gave you in college, I'm sure. And so, indeed the bones were very dry. And I love Jesus for verse 3. You know what he says? Uh, So, son of man, can can these bones live? Already knowing how awesome he is. But he says, can these bones live? And he says, "Uh, Lord, you know. And again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Basically, watch me. So he prophesies to the bones and he says, the Lord, this is the Lord God of these bones. Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. That grammatical phrase, then you shall know that I am the Lord is a direct tie to Ezekiel 36. There were no chapters of versification in the Bible initially. And God knew this response would come from people in response to the new covenant. He keeps going. And he says, I know what you're thinking, but watch this. Do you think these bones can't live? Watch me. You don't think I can raise your body from the dead? Watch me. He continues in verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews in the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. This is what all the false revivals look like. Whole lot of noise, whole lot of stuff happening, but there's no power from God. False revivals are not what Jesus is looking for. He doesn't just want noise and bedlam. He wants the power of God in his people. And so he has a solution to that. And he said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. He says in Ezekiel 36, Your your houses will be full of flocks of men, your cities full of flocks of men, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, And you may be thinking, yeah, but this has nothing to do with people. It's just this story about whatever. Look what God says. He says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. People. Indeed, they say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. You ever said that about your situation? My bones are dry, my hope is cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord." The Lord Jesus Christ raises people from the dead. I don't care how dry your bones have been, how fruitless your experience have been, you can ask the Lord to do this for, him, for you today. I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them, he says. You can have this experience. You can have the Spirit of God break out this death and lethargy and you can find life again. You can find revival You can find obedience, and you can live a life that causes the surrounding nations to know that there is a God in heaven who is real. Why? Because I was dead, and now I'm alive. If I ever had to have a conversation with an atheist, and they say, how do you know God exists? You know what I would tell them? Two words, sit down. And I would start telling the story of redemption played out in my life. You tell me how this man became this man. I have no answer for that. There's no answer for this. If you asked people in high school, what would I be doing with my life? And you told them now what I'm doing with my life. They would not believe you. Why? Because God raises people from the dead. That's why. And he can do that for you. Even if we have been frozen cold in the Laodicean condition of Adventism, deader than dead, he can bring life to your experience. I don't care if you haven't done anything for Jesus for 50 years in this church. He can change that today. That's good news. And that's actually an old hat. That's a different sermon. So my encouragement to you is to do something that pleases God, and that's believe His promises. Because His Word says a lot of good things about you. You'll never believe this. The very person that you're afraid of disappointing the most, God. God believes the best things about you. That's the gospel. That's the faith of Jesus. He sees someone that can look like the Garden of Eden, not a city in ruins. He sees somebody with skin, flesh, and the breath of God within them, not dry bones. God sees you for what you are in Christ. He calls the things, according to Romans 4, that do not exist as though they did. The story that's told about Abraham is it says that seeing then... um, my mind just went blank. I have this verse memorized. But I don't have it memorized right now. Just kidding. So let's go to Romans 4. Oh, I know why. That's Hebrews. It says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is what the Bible in Romans says about Abraham. The only problem with that is the text itself in the book of Genesis. Because the very same Abraham had a whole lot of times when he didn't believe. Hagar's a good example, which now led to, you know, like ISIS, right? We're still dealing with that unbelief today. He wrestled, right? He lied about his wife twice. But here's the thing. When Abraham trusted Jesus to be his righteousness, according to Romans 4, Jesus rewrites his story in the history books. It doesn't seem like that anymore, and that's why Paul says in the same chapter, he calls the things that do not exist as though they did. God calls Abraham what he is in Jesus, not what he lived in Genesis. That means that if your life has been filled with, I mean, Abraham, was, he did pretty well compared to most of us, yeah? He can rewrite your story too. If you've been faithless, if you've been discouraged, if you've been idle in your Christian experience, that can change. That's good news. That's the message of righteousness by faith. That's the message of sanctification, that the power of God, when you yield to Jesus and say yes to Him and follow the promptings of the Spirit, you become something you weren't before. And you receive the imputed righteousness at salvation, and you're continually receiving the imparted righteousness day by day as you're being sanctified. So you've started on a process, and God, who is faithful to begin in, is going to make sure it ends as it ought, right? He began a good work, and you will see it through to the end. If you stay in the process, if you continue to respond to the promptings of the Spirit every step of the way, God will keep His promise to you, and you can please Him by believing His promises. Amen? That's good news today. Last thing we're going to cover this afternoon is this idea of imputed and imparted righteousness, and specifically laying out what role the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation, because it's very important to understand this. But I want to close with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll have a brief break. Lord Jesus, thank you. I thank you that in Ezekiel 36, you said that we can inquire, that you will let the house of Israel inquire of you to do this for us. Lord, we ask that today. I'm a mess. I need Jesus. I don't do the things that I want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And I know the answer is found in Romans 8 by choosing to let you be my righteousness, to cease the works of the flesh to take responsibility for my sin, and to trust in Jesus, to depend upon Jesus. And I pray that for me and everyone present. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, wash us in the blood of Jesus, I pray, and fill us with your spirit to make us into the people we need to be. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.